0: a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles, Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's where W E A R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylan Page Life and Style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.ckinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage we are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love, like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. BlankCast lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass and a website will be launched soon at blankcasts.com. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York city based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of September, St. Evans is supporting the Lower East Side Girls Club, which connects young women and gender-expansive youth of color throughout New York City to healthy and successful futures through free, innovative, year-round programming and mentoring. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at @wear_st Dot Evans. That's where St. Evans Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia, by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit crocheted or woven pieces find us on instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that epically failed at making their own soap. Seriously, you'll hear all about it. It was a nightmare. Okay, maybe it was a nightmare. It was just really disappointing. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 96. Today's guest is Melissa, the owner, operator, soap maker, candlestick maker, and all of the other things behind Vellum Street Soap Company. Yes, We're going to talk about soap. We're going to talk about skincare and packaging waste and fragrances, all the things you would expect, but we're also going to talk about throwaway culture and food waste and so much more. This conversation went in so many interesting directions and I'm so excited for you to hear it. Before we jump into that, I want to take a moment to thank some of the new supporters on Patreon. If you're unfamiliar with Patreon, it's a service that allows you to support my work while having access to exclusive episodes and content. To be honest... It's the only way I currently can be paid for my work on CloseHorse. Horse. So the support of all the rad listeners who have become patrons allows me to continue to work on CloseHorse. Horse. I'm so grateful for their support because it gives me the opportunity to continue to create this work, which I love doing. And loving what you do for work is a rare and beautiful thing. You also might be surprised to hear that it does cost money to make a podcast way more than you think it's going to be. Let me tell you, as a person who said, I think I'm going to start a podcast without doing any research, it's a surprising amount of money to make a podcast, especially a podcast that has good sound quality and all of that. We have to ship microphones around from guest to guest, Uh, there's recording and hosting costs, the website, subscriptions to various websites I use for research. It all adds up and I'm so Grateful for all of you who help out with that. Here are some of the latest patrons. First is Adam Lohman, who unfortunately I couldn't stalk on the internet. In fact, all of the patrons I'm naming today, I could not stalk on the internet. Uh, Adam, I'm so grateful for your support. And I just want to say in general, and this is my personal experience, people with the name Adam are usually pretty rad. So thank you so much, Adam. Next is Jaina Maxwell. And I just want to say that Jaina is one of my favorite names. Thank you for your support, Jaina. Then we have Anne Winners. And is it just me or is Winners a name that surely sets you up for success? It's like manifesting from birth. Thank you, Anne. Lastly, but not leastly, is Renee Stauffer. I went to elementary school with a boy named Mike Stauffer, and he had just the loveliest handwriting. I, I like to think he's related to Renee. By the way, for all of you that I was unable to creep on via the internet, if you have a business or a project that you're working on that you would like me to shout out here, drop me a line. That's one of the reasons I do the shout outs, not only to show my gratitude, but also to give some of you a chance to, you know, get your business name out there. And hopefully all of you who listen, hear those business names and go follow them on Instagram and it just builds our community and we support small business. If you would like to support Close Horse via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash closehorsepodcast, and that link will be in the show notes. And if you can't do that, that's okay, too. I'm really excited to have you here, no matter what. So keep listening.
1: She likes people, people like her. Who like people, like Dial. Because Dial soap never lets perspiration odor come between friends. Ordinary soap leaves thousands of bacteria on your skin, sort of like this. And these are the cause of perspiration odor. Dial with AT7 removes most of these bacteria, not just from under arms, but all over. Dial protects you long after your daily bath. Never lets perspiration odor come between friends. She likes people People like her And people who like people like Dial. Good news for the soft sex That's me A new soap to help get you softer A soap that's more like cream New creamier camé Looks more like cream Try it Mmm, feels more like cream. It's the creamiest came ever made. new, new. New creamier came, the soap that's more like cream, helps get the soft sex softer.
0: One of the great things about being the only person other than Dustin that works on Clothes Horse is that I can go on really weird journeys. I can follow one idea on my own and explore it via the podcast and. Instagram and all the other ways I work on and research Close Horse. And sometimes it happens that a series of conversations with different guests helps me put it all together and see a bigger picture. And I'm having one of those moments right now here in September. Episodes moved around, new guests came into the mix, and my vision and my plan for the month shifted. And then a theme emerged. And that theme is nothing is disposable. No, it's not as catchy as hashtag trash month. What will be? It can only come once a year, trash month, you know? But it really nails everything will be breaking down this month and into October. Nothing is disposable. Even if it says that on the packaging – Everything we buy and use, from the food we eat, to the clothing we wear, the furniture we sit on, the homes we live in, styrofoam plates, those plastic cups from Starbucks, all of it, it all required raw materials, energy, work, so much work, so many people's time and effort and skill and innovation to create this product that might be in our life for a very small period of time. None of it can just be thrown away lightly. We'll be exploring that a lot this month, and yes, we'll be talking about clothes, but we'll be talking about other aspects of throwaway culture too. This is another long episode. I mean, that's just how it happens sometimes, so pace yourself. I'm gonna give you a little talk now about personal care products, then we're going to listen to the conversation with Melissa, and then we're going to end it all with just a little bit more information about essential oils. Sometimes you got to go long to tell the whole story. And I personally, I'm a completionist. I like to tell the whole story.
1: Safeguard presents a real family portrait, the Vanderways. Tennis, golf, a unicycle. How do you manage this team? With this Safeguard deodorant soap. Mm, it's more than a deodorant soap. We all use it. The children, too? Certainly. Gives them a good start on their complexion. But how is it as a deodorant soap? The best. Gives us great deodorant protection. Think I'll try it. Come on, join our team. Safeguard, the perfect family soap.
0: I've been obsessing for a while about doing more episodes about the impact of the beauty and personal care industry because... I think it's an area of overconsumption, of waste, of rampant greenwashing that doesn't get the same kind of attention and criticism as the fast fashion industry. But it's a $500 billion business, meaning $500 billion worth of product sold every year, most of it packaged in plastic. The industry spends $25 billion each year on packaging alone. Yes, just the packaging. Packaging is possibly more important in the beauty and personal care industry than it is in any other industry, because it's the packaging that makes you want to buy the product inside. It's not, in many cases, the product inside that matters to you. Mind-blowing, I know, but when you take a step back and think about it, you're like, oh yeah, I think you might be onto something there. 70% of that $25 billion worth of packaging ends up in landfills. Most of it's not recyclable because remember, a lot of plastic doesn't get recycled. A lot of it isn't recyclable in most places in the first place. When you think about all of this stuff that we're buying a ton of and ending up in landfills, it does start to make you think of fast fashion, doesn't it? And to be honest, in 2021, there are beauty brands that work like fast fashion, churning out new collections and collabs every week or two. I mean, I have told you many times, all the times I've gone to, you know, trend forecasting events or even just read trend reports that have come across my desk throughout my career. The past few years... Yes, they've been talking about sustainability a lot. They've also been talking about beauty. In fact, I would say in the last 5 to 6 years, you you probably will notice this now that you I say it, lots of fast fashion brands saw beauty and personal care and fragrance, all of those things as a massive opportunity, and they began to, you know, buy some outside brands but mostly create their own makeup, lotion, perfume. You, know, you name it using their own pack you know their own labeling right it's like private label versions they created their own brands of beauty because it's a very high margin category meaning it's very profitable and as i'm going to talk about very briefly in this conversation with melissa there are so many companies out there who offer this private label beauty product service where basically you come to them with their, your art your inspiration and they create the packaging for you they design it to your specifications and they make the product for you and so really you're not making beauty at all someone else is making it for you but now you have it to sell i mean i've zara sells cosmetics and beauty h&m has been doing it for a long time forever 21 urban outfitters all of the fast fashion retailers have gotten into the beauty and personal care game This industry, whether it's the brands we buy at Sephora or Ulta, the stuff we buy at Zara, anywhere, uses a ton of resources and it contributes to pollution in all kinds of insidious ways that you might not be thinking about. I mean, in general, most beauty and personal care stuff, not that sustainable. We've got hundreds of billions of units of packaging being made every year. Remember, $25 $25 billion worth of packaging being created for this industry each year. How about microbeads? You'll find those in exfoliating washes and shower gels. And microplastics like glitter, these things are finding their way into both the soil and the ocean and ultimately our, the food we eat and then our bodies. There's avobenzone, which is a chemical in sunscreens that has been proven to deplete coral reefs. There are these chemicals called volatile organic compounds. You might see them called VOCs that are in fragrances and hairsprays that contribute to smog and air pollution. The use of palm oil in 70% of cosmetics has led to massive deforestation as well as tons of abuse and exploitation of humans. The products and all that packaging are shipped all around the world, eating up a ton of energy and increasing the carbon footprint of the industry. And of course, we don't know anything about the supply chains for most of these products. How were the workers who made both the contents and the packaging paid and treated? We don't know. And we don't know what the environmental impact of all of that production was. And oh yeah, let's not forget that a lot of products in 2021 are still tested on animals. It's kind of like, I, I don't know. I th- think of the bad impact of beauty and personal care on our planet and its people and its animals, its water, its air, all of those things as a secret, right? And to be fair, I think that the impact of fashion has also been a secret for a long time. But of course, if you've been listening long enough to Close Horse, you're like, yeah, it's not a secret anymore, right? I think this beauty realm—it's still—it's still a secret. And so that's a—it's great for the industry that it's a secret because we can continue to buy and buy without thinking about it, without knowing the impact. An uneducated consumer in this area is the dream for that industry. I mean, fast fashion has been relying on that as well. The more people in our lives that we educate about the impact of fast fashion, the less that industry is allowed to grow, which is great. And I want us to start having these same sorts of conversations about beauty and personal care products. If you used just one unit each of shampoo Cream, like a lotion, soap, and toothpaste every month. You would have dis- discarded close to five hundred pieces of plastic slash packaging in ten years. But that's the basics. Like, where's the conditioner in there? Where's the sunscreen? Where's the face wash and the toner and all the serums and I don't know. I can't even think of all the hair care products that are out there. It's such a massive spectrum, and we didn't even touch. On cosmetics. I mean, this, what I just said, that 500 pieces of packaging, mostly plastic, in 10 years, that's one person using the bare minimum of grooming products, which I don't actually know anyone who uses just those four things, right? What about skin serums and sheet masks and mascara and hair oil and so on? Because in the era of the shelfie of buzzy Instagram-friendly brands like Glossier and Colourpop, it's way too easy to buy way more than you will ever need. It's so easy to impulse shop and end up with lots of stuff you use or barely use. Sounds a lot like fast fashion, right? But unlike clothing… Personal care products, skincare, and makeup, all of that becomes valueless the moment you open the packaging. No one wants that mascara you wore once, that eyeshadow that was just a little too wild for you, the 100th lipstick that you bought that was just a little too orange for your skin tone. But much like fast fashion, the packaging for these products, which I just want to mention again, is a copious amount of packaging will live in the landfills for generations personal care products like makeup hair care products deodorants perfumes lotions hair removal devices and all the other products associated with that hair dye I don't know I'm missing a ton of categories here they are sold to us as necessities as things we must have to exist in this society as a decent upstanding person of things we must consume to remain attractive, to look younger, to be attractive to others, to succeed in work and friendships and social media, and even at our jobs. I'm not going to break down in this episode what is or is not essential to you from a personal care perspective, because that's an entirely personal choice but we have to recognize that just as we've been told incorrectly that we need a new outfit for every date, party, wedding, or brunch, we've also been sold a lot of products and devices that we don't truly need. This realm of beauty, I'm just going to say it again, is so massive, so profitable. Of course, all the fast fashion retailers had to jump on that too, Much as retailers have used the false promise of so-called retail therapy to sell us more clothes, shoes, accessories, and throw pillows than we actually will ever need, the personal care industry has latched on to the very important, very valuable act of self-care and turned it into a way to sell us more stuff we just don't need. And the great thing about a lot of these things is that they feel like a way to treat ourselves without breaking the bank. I can remember so distinctly. I have so many memories of this. Sometimes I have dreams about this. There was a 24-hour Walgreens in my neighborhood in Portland. Sometimes as a retail manager, I would have to clope-in. All of you who work retail just cringed. You you know, you know the pain of a clope-in. For those of you who haven't had to do it, it means close the store working till about 11pm, then be back at work to open the store around 7am, 6am, depends where you work. At this point, my babysitter Cindy, who is still, uh, I was thinking about Cindy as I was working on this episode, still one of the most incredible people I have ever met, a person who was not required to care for me and Dylan in the way that she did, and yet she did. It's so magical. What an amazing person! Um, she would keep Dylan overnight on those occasions because dragging a toddler back and forth at those hours on my bike, it wasn't working well for anyone. It wasn't great for me. Dylan was a mess. Cindy was sort of like, you know, I'd rather not be up until midnight and get back up at six to see Dylan. Just keep keep the kid here. And so I would find myself on those nights biking by Walgreens at 1130, just feeling exhausted, depressed about going to work in just a few hours. I would lock up my bike. I would walk the aisles of Walgreens looking for a little something to pick me up. Because remember, I didn't have very much money. Something that was under $5 maybe that would cheer me up. A conditioner packet, a wet and wild lipstick, perhaps and this would be pretty luxurious, a hot BOGO deal on Revlon eyeshadow. The little things, these little things that we treat ourselves with, they do mean something and we deserve them. But we also have to remember that these items are not disposable. We buy these things much in the same way we consume fast fashion because each purchase feels so hopeful. It offers a better future, better skin, better hair, better life, until abruptly we realize it does not. We tend to think of these things as a very temporary part of our lives. We'll use them until they're used up or dried out or neglected for long enough. Maybe they'll pile up in a drawer or a bin in our bathroom, and then when we're about to move to a new home, we'll toss them i had this empty marshmallow fluff container that i would store all of this excess makeup in right like red lipsticks always i was always trying to wear red lipstick and then realizing that i'm too self-conscious about it the accompanying red lip liners also in the marshmallow fluff container random neon eyeliners i tried that so many times all of this stuff that i thought would be a new day on the horizon for me that i tried once and realized was not was not who i was i moved that plastic marshmallow fluff container full of sad makeup from apartment to apartment all of it barely used and gradually you know drying up and solidifying these were impulse treats that i thought would change my life they would make me more confident more attractive, a better version of myself. And you know what? That never happened. And they literally became trash five minutes after opening. To be honest, I got more use and enjoyment out of the marshmallow fluff that had previously filled that storage container than any of those little impulse purchases. Now, we're sold more products than ever under the guise that they are essential primer, makeup setting mist, contouring stuff, sheet masks, so many skincare steps. Skincare got so complicated. Dry shampoo, dry conditioner, separate lotions for our faces, hands, feet, and bodies. It's a lot. And it's easy to believe that these things will change our lives because we all want hope, right? We want to believe that tomorrow We will be a better person than we were today. Being mindful about the way we buy and use these products, reigning in that impulse purchasing, it can make a major impact on the world around us. I would would ask you to go into your bathroom right now or wherever you store all of your stuff. Count how many different items, whether you use them every day or not, that you have. Now, count what you actually use every day. I think that you're going to see a really surprising ratio there. I think it's important for us to confront these things about ourselves. It's not your fault. You're not a bad person because you have all of these things. But much like we have been now for more than a year working together to reevaluate our relationships with our clothing and our shoes and whatnot. We're going to start thinking about that together when it comes to skincare and beauty and you know, hair care, all of these things. We're going to be more conscious of that together. I think it's another area where we can support one another. I'm not here to guilt you for your complex skincare regimen. Trust me, I have one of my own. It's okay if you feel like your best self is wearing lipstick or highlighter or whatever makes you feel most confident and powerful, I get up every morning and I put on makeup before I sit down at my desk. I don't even leave my house very often. That's how I feel my most powerful. That's okay. But I do want us to think about that implied disposability because it's just not real. Nothing is disposable. You know, it's an interesting dichotomy that this industry sells us. On one hand, this thing will make you better, more successful, more appealing to the world, more popular, the best version of yourself. I I fall for it too. I dream at night that I am beautiful and all of the people that I wanted to love me, they finally do. And they love me so much. It is all they can talk about. They write songs where the lyrics are all of the ill-advised texts I've ever sent them. And they say, Amanda, you are a beautiful genius. You send the best ill-advised texts. And I'm so grateful for them. And They get up on a stage where they declare all of this and perform these songs, and I look on from the audience with flawless skin and bouncy hair, and I'm nodding, yes, yes. I'm glad you've all finally figured it out. But then I wake up, I look in the mirror and I realize that I'm not that glimmering perfect me that everyone loved in my dreams. And I look around my bathroom for that thing that might make me into that person. I wanna hear what beauty blogs and makeup ads and Instagram influencers think will fix me. The product that will literally make my dreams a reality. We're sold this idea of We're sold the idea of this thing that will make it better. No, no, best for us. And at the same time, this magical product that can do all of these things, it's also totally disposable, totally a temporary thing that will be replaced in just a few weeks or a few months, whether we've used it completely or not. Nothing is disposable. That's my lecture for today. (laughs) I'm not here to ruin things that are fun, to suck the joy out of life or to ensure that both you and me never have a single moment of simple happiness in our lives. I'm just here to encourage us, all of us, myself included, to think about these things because we have to. We have to think about these things. I've had to have some tough conversations with myself about this. I'm also just going to mention again that I am dying for someone who works or worked in the cosmetics industry to please be a guest on this show. I've been trying for a year now to no avail. I have so many questions about makeup. If you know someone, send them my way. And if you don't, that's okay too. It's going to happen eventually. You're about to learn a ton right now about skincare, soap, fragrance, all kinds of things from Melissa. So Let's just jump right in. Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? I already know who you are, but they don't.
2: (laughs) Well, hello. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, I am Melissa Torrey. Um, I own a company called Vellum Street Soap Company, and we do soap, candles, skincare, a whole array of products um, that you use for your skin and in your house to feel good and smell good. Um, And we'll get into a little bit with why Bellum Street is different and not your typical soap or skincare or candle company. Um, But thanks for having me today.
0: I'm excited. I am a big fan of your soap. Um, I also have so many questions about skincare and soap. And I have many strong feelings there. But you're an expert in a way that I'm not. So I'm excited talk about this. So I wanted to start. I know that you were not like you didn't crawl out of the womb with a bar of soap in your hand. And <laughs> I <did> I'm, not. <laughs> I'm guessing that when you were in like third grade, you weren't like doodling bars of soap in your notebook, like dreaming of the day you were gonna make soap. So why don't you tell me about what you did before you made soap and kind of like how you got there? So
2: yeah, definitely not I am like joke all the time. Like I'm was the dirty kid. I like to play in the dirt and the mud and super outdoorsy. Uh if you would have told me even 10 years ago, and I've had this business for five years, 10 years ago, seven years ago, that I would own a soap company, I would think you were crazy. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) it's been a strange road, but I love it. And I love that I ended up here. Um so I am initially I'm a high school dropout. I was in school, I was a smart kid, I got in tons of trouble, but I got really bored. Um, So I ended up quitting school and just starting to work. And I was one of those people that always just had two jobs. I was always working like crazy. And uh, I ended up, I worked a lot of retail for a long time and then ended up in the restaurant industry, bartending, waitressing, as many young high school dropout people do. Um, I quickly worked my way up to a lot of management positions. uh, And when I was in my mid-20s, for the first time, had... Vegetables with a meal that didn't come from a frozen package.
0: (laughs) I understand this very well.
2: (laughs) That's how I grew up, right? We ate frozen broccoli with cheese and salad that came in a bag.
0: Always cheese. I was definitely... In, like, an adult before I had broccoli without cheese. Like, I didn't even know that was something people did.
2: Same, same here. I grew up <laughs> eating like rice with sugar, broccoli with cheese all over. I didn't think you ate vegetables without some sort of sauce on them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I grew up. That was the 80s, you know? That's how we ate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um,
2: and I never like, I loved food, but I grew up, I grew up in Jersey. I grew up eating pizza and bagels. And, you know, sometimes we would have that broccoli with cheese, Jolly Green Giant. And uh, mm-hmm. in my mid twenties, I'd moved to Philly when I was 19. And uh, in my like early twenties, I guess I started going out to eat at restaurants that were not pizza places, <laughs> um, you know, where you sat down and actually ordered your meal. And I started eating vegetables and realizing that. I liked food in a way that I never knew that I liked food before. Um, And that fresh food was completely different than anything I had really been used to my entire life growing up. Uh, So it got me really interested in food. And so I started eating a lot more and being interested in where my food actually came from. I had never thought about that before. It wasn't never thought about like, we went strawberry picking as a kid, but I, I didn't think of food overall as like where it came from and what farming meant and what food quality meant, Um, and that got me into cooking. Uh, I ended up, a couple years after getting really into this, I ended up um, starting to bake uh, a lot and uh, selling just cookies and baked goods and things like that to coworkers, which led me to opening a bakery here in Philly uh, called Cookie Confidential, and this was back in 2010. And I used all organic and locally sourced products before it was like a super huge thing. Um, But all of our, even our flour came from Lancaster County, our butter, our dairy, everything. Um, Most things came from within 100 miles of the bakery. And it was really interesting to go from the kid who just lived on like Oreos to... (laughs) 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 knowing like being at the farm where all of the ingredients that I was using to make things for somebody else came from. And it gave me this connection with not only the food itself, but with the people I was serving to where I can tell them these stories and saw how interested they were and also realized the difference in quality between between those ingredients, you know, uh, between Mm -hmm. sugar, you would buy like a five pound bag of domino sugar and the sugar that I would buy from these smaller farms that didn't bleach it and add other chemicals to it. Um, so even though I owned a boat bakery, I was very interested in food sustainability and nutrition, which is weird for a sugar peddler, but (laughs) (laughs) it's, you know, some, sometimes these things happen. Um, right. <laughs> and I grew up I grew up lower middle class like we never wanted for anything. But my grandmother grew up very poor. So it was a household where we saved everything and you've reused everything. You know, we had the can of bacon grease next to the stove. You didn't throw it away. That's. What oh, we yeah. Talk. dude. Like-
0: <laughs> I mean, I still hoard that stuff. <laughs>
2: not going to lie. <laughs> Me too. I was just joking this morning. I have two mason jars full of bacon grease and made bacon again. And I was like, we need to cook more because I have all this bacon
0: grease. Totally. Totally. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, uh, so in the bakery, we just, you know, there's things that there's a lot of food waste in the restaurant world. And this was something I kept seeing, no matter where I worked in other places and my own restaurant And there's so much that we're throwing away because you can't use it for, you know, uh, we did a lot of cookies with bacon in them, cookies and cupcakes. And so there was bacon grease all over. And I was like, Mm -hmm. there's only so much I can use or citrus peels or, um, different seeds and, and like stems of things, cherry stems. So at the same time, I was also struggling with a lot of skin issues. I, um, at 16, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Uh, turns out, when I was in my 30s, I found out that was actually never the case. Uh,
0: Great, <laughs> so, I guess.
2: Yeah, we won't we won't go into the long story of 20 years of misdiagnosis and being fed lots of different pharmaceuticals and antibiotics and medicines oh by doctors that were completely not for anything that I actually had. Um, well, you and
0: I bonded over this when we were pre gaming. I told no. you how I went on a like decades long journey to find out what was really wrong with my stomach, and I remember one doctor specifically being like, "Oh, you just need to be on birth control."
2: Right, which is what does birth control have to do? With I know. Job?
0: I know. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure anybody listening to this is like nodding their head or shaking their head, but they're both saying the same thing, which is just like, yeah, I hear you on this one. It's crazy
2: (sighs) how many more people too I come across in my life that have had similar issues to this.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: And mine were, you know, I get why I was initially diagnosed. It started with nerve pain and joint pain. And I grew up in the Pine Barrens in Jersey. So Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, your test is negative, but you definitely have this. And you know, at that point, when I was 16, the treatment for antibiotics for Lyme was a year-long course of antibiotics. So I don't even know what... Oh, yeah. (laughs) So who knows what that even did to my system.
1: Wow! Um,
2: And to this day, we still don't know exactly what is wrong with me. It's an autoimmune condition that I can definitely keep in check a lot by what I eat. Um, So, but back at that time, I was... A lot of it was showing itself externally, um, and I had really bad psoriasis and eczema, and I would break out in hives all the time, and I just thought I was sensitive. I was one of those people that I was like, oh, I can only use Tide laundry detergent because my right. skin is sensitive. I break out. Meanwhile, it's I owned a bakery, and wheat crazily makes – Whatever is wrong with me is so much worse. Um, I don't want to technically say I'm allergic to it, but it exasperates my condition so bad. I'll break out in hives. My joints hurt. um, Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I was working in a bakery every day. It's how I made my living. (laughs) I'm breathing it in. Yeah. yeah. Just getting sicker and sicker. Uh, So I started dabbling in skincare, both as a way to try to take care of what I was going through myself, but also to use some of these waste products that we had um, in the bakery. Uh, And bacon fat was one of those things I initially started with um, and playing with soap and making soap out of bacon fat. Um, Little history of soap here uh, that a lot of people don't realize is that soap came about because of the mixture of animal fat and uh, lye ash. So lye ash comes from when you have a fire, um, the ash in there contains lye. Um, You can still make soap like that. It's not easy and it's not precise. So really Mm. nobody does it. Nobody gets their lye really from that manner any longer. (laughs) Um, People of a certain age will remember or at least remember their parents talking about lye soap burning um, because because you didn't know how to measure it. There was no way to measure the amount of lye that was in the ash. So if you use too much lye, it does burn your skin. Um, Yeah. But what soap is, is actually a chemical reaction between fats and lye. So when done properly with the proper chemistry, you actually have no more fat and no more lye left over. It has created a new substance, which is soap. Um, If there's not lye in it, it's not actually soap. It's something else. It's a detergent or a cleanser. It wouldn't actually chemically fall under uh, the soap umbrella.
0: Interesting. So like is glycerin a fat? I don't know if glycerin soap is as popular anymore, but I feel like that was a 90s thing. Like there was that Neutrogena orange glycerin soap. Do you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes. Totally. Like, totally ruined your face. <laughs> totally ruined your face, right? But it seemed premium. It was in like every teen magazine. Like this is what you need. Marketing is or, brilliant. <laughs> uh, or there was that Clinique bar soap. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I remember that too. But mm-hmm. it came in a big old like – green Clinique, like, like reusable soap caddy thing that like for traveling. And I went through a phase where I was using that and my skin was probably the worst it's ever been. Uh, (laughs) Not recommended. (laughs) we, We get sold that we need these things to
2: put on our skin. And there are certain things we need to do to our skin. But also, if humans really needed that many things for their skin to be healthy, we would have died out a long
0: time ago. Yeah, like, exactly. We start molting or something. Right. Like <laughs> humanity
2: wouldn't have evolved and progressed for as long as it has and been the most prolific species on the planet had we been that sensitive to our environment that. You know, our skin was just dying because it was dirty (laughs) and it didn't have a
0: toner. (laughs)
2: That's definitely one of the biggest lies that we've been sold. Um, And, you know, I'm saying this as a person who's trying to sell you soap, right? But (laughs) but we don't need to overdo it. Um, And your skin does have a chemistry and balance that's important. Um, And so, glycerin, to answer your question, glycerin is. Glycerin's weird, right? So it's glycerin, what it does in a soap is it will kind of pull uh the humidity out of the air, pulls water out of the air. Okay. Well, it will help to moisturize your skin. Glycerin is not bad. Um What a lot of soaps on the market these days do, it's more profitable for soap companies to sell the glycerin separately than the soap. So they make soap, they remove the glycerin from it, they sell that off separately, and then you get a soap that doesn't have glycerin in it, which in turn makes that soap more drying to your skin. And then you need
0: lotion. Uh (laughs) Yeah, totally. All adds up. Big lotion. Big lotion.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... My soap does have glycerin and most handmade soaps that you're going to get do have glycerin in it. And that's why most Mm -hmm. people will use those soaps and be like, oh, they're really moisturizing. Like my hands Mm -hmm. don't feel dry after I use it. And that usually is attributed – it could be attributed to other herbs and things that are in the soap. But mainly it's probably coming from the glycerin. Um, So glycerin is good. And, you know, things like that Neutrogena soap. It wasn't the glycerin that was bad. It was, you know, who I don't even remember what else was in that. Who I'm knows? curious now and I want to, like, go look at it and
0: see what the ingredient list is. I know. Me too. I remember it had a vaguely medicinal smell. It did. Like, there, there was something weird that was either added just as a fragrance to make it feel medical. Right. Or there was literally something in there that was, like, I remember it was really popular for a lot of, like, anti-acne soap yes. and stuff when I was a kid to have, like, a it's called triclosan that's what i was it. just gonna
2: say i wonder if yeah. triclosan, which is an antibacterial which that was you know it's another thing that we've done to kind of there's there's a lot of debate in that world are antibacterial soaps good or are you making stronger bugs and organisms by using these antibacterial soaps and right. you know you can find scientists and and research on both sides of the coin i don't think anyone has a definitive answer uh, but it, you can,
0: you know, anybody can do their own reading and, and find plenty of things to yeah. do their Yeah. And I, I mean, we don't use antibacterial soap in our house, um, not just because of the concern about that, but I have actually found, I get this eczema on my hands from like hand washing and mm-hmm. dishwashing. And during the pandemic, of course, my hands have been, they're back on track, but like all the hand washing and hand sanitizer, which I'm not a hand sanitizer person either for this reason. But uh, I find that the antibacterial ingredients actually exacerbate my eczema and I get these painful blisters all over my hands. Mm -hmm. So I'm a strict like normal
2: soap kind of person. I am the same. I don't use antibacterial anything. I don't use hand sanitizers. Um, I I had so many people so Throughout the pandemic, I was still uh, managing restaurants, and I just would see so much of my staff with horrible hands, like torn up and ripped up. And they're like, "Well, it's mm. from hand sanitizer." And I was like, "Well, you realize you're actually making yourself more susceptible to any by having are- an open wound, exactly. yeah." And it's, it's
0: exactly, and it's we
2: do the same thing to our face and our body. Like there are bacteria that live on us that we need. We do not do well without them. We have a symbiotic relationship yeah, with these things, totally. and. When we sterilize ourselves and our environment and take away those good bacteria, we are much more susceptible to the bad bacteria. Um, Your skin's a barrier. It's the biggest one you have. It's your best source against anything on the outside to protect you. And when you strip it of all the things that are supposed to be there, you're really giving yourself less of a chance to stay healthy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, So... Making soap, okay, I'm going to tell you, I tried to make soap one time with my friend Mary, <laughs> and it was a disaster. It was the <laughs> worst soap ever. Uh, there's so much artistry. I mean, there's science, but there's also artistry to it. Why don't you I'm, tell everyone? I'm curious
2: real quick, though. What was your disaster? Did it look bad? Did it? Could you? Was it usable? I, it was really
0: sandy Whoa. in texture, huh. like very... Very powdery, ultimately. Okay. And like, not a night. <clears throat> I, I assume that using it would have just like immediately sucked any kind of moisture out of it <laughs> again so that the soap could continue to live. It was very sad. We were really excited. We had like been wanting to make soap for so long. We were like, this is going to be great. We're going to make between the two of us enough soap for both of our families for a year. We're geniuses. We're saving so much money. And it was like horrible. <laughs> Um, just like not, I was like, maybe it's exfoliating. So it just <laughs> good so It definitely burned a little when you used it, like you said. Um, so. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how to make soap? Because most people have never even had the, the joy of epically failing at making soap either. It's true. <laughs> they haven't. It. Um,
2: and it's really not that hard. The internet will scare you. So many people are very afraid of lie, And it's it's not that scary. If you've ever cooked with hot grease, like hot grease burns too. Be careful. Um <laughs> Like it's not it's True not a story. Yeah, it's people get I've like read these things about how terrified and I'll read it, it, like instructional things and people are like scaring people. Like lie is not that scary. No, you don't want to pour it on yourself, but just be careful and pay attention to what you're doing, and you're, you're gonna be fine. Um, so basic soap, the the only two things you actually need to make soap are lye and oil. And water. I'm sorry, you need you need water as well. Okay. Um So you would mix it and, you know, you can get much more intense like I do with with how I make it, but you, you know, there is chemistry involved and there's a balance of how much water and how much lye and how much oil you use, but you basically mix those things together and they will saponify. Saponification is the the process that happens when you make soap, when you mix these chemicals together and it is literally turning into soap. Um, It is leaving its life as lye and oil and becoming soap. Um, And depending on the oils that you use and the temperatures for it to harden, it can take anywhere from moments to a couple of days. Uh, Like if you make pure olive oil soap, a lot of times for those bars to actually get hard, it will take months um, for the process of saponification to finish and for the amount of water that you need to evaporate to actually leave the bar. Otherwise, they can be really soft, and you could use it once, and they 'll kind of melt away uh, mm-hmm. so you want it 's almost like making charcuterie you want the soap to cure once you make it um like so when we make soap. Uh, I make it, I pour it, I cut it, and then that soap sits for, depending on the humidity levels at the time, anywhere from three to six weeks before I actually wow. sell Wow.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, and That's wild. So you had to start making soap like a month before you could actually sell any of it.
2: Yes. So it's so weird because you don't know, especially, I mean, now it's different now. I'm five years in, right? So I know what my recipes are. I know what to look for. I can tell if there is something weird or wrong. Like I know it right away. It's It's an intrinsic thing that I've learned from doing this for five years. But at the beginning, I would make something and then be like, okay, well, let's wait and see if I did it right. So I wouldn't want to make a lot at once because what if I ruined it? What if I did something wrong?
0: Right, I know. This is like giving me anxiety.
2: (laughs) 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 Yeah, so it definitely it definitely is weird because you make it and then you just let it sit. Um, You can use it right away. Sometimes the lie is not completely changed. So it could you do have the chance of it burning a little bit. Um, Also, the bars are going to melt away much faster because they're not cured. They still have a lot of water in them. So, you know, it's not like you can't use it at all. But it's just not you're not getting the best quality out of it. Um, And if it's super humid, then I tend to let it cure longer because the water doesn't evaporate out of it as quickly as it would if it's really dry. Like, you know, people who live in Arizona, they probably always can just let their bars cure for like three months. Whereas here where it's humid up, you know, in the northeast of the country, when it's humid, those bars are taking like six weeks. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> um, you'll also see getting back to glycerin um if you ever shop handmade soap and like i don't know outdoors farmer's market or something like that and you notice that the bars feel a little bit wet that mm-hmm. is the glycerin that's in those bars and it's pulling the water molecules out of the air and bonding with them so that's why you'll sometimes see handmade soap if it's really good if it has glycerin it they will seem wet if it's humid out um which is funny. And I didn't learn that until some time into my soap making. I thought I had ruined a bunch of soap. (laughs) Why are these wet? What's going on? And you know, now I've done so much research and so much learning and I I understand so much about the chemistry of soap making, but at first I had no idea. Um, I was just, I'm a chef and I was making soap. And technically it's very similar to baking, you know, certain, certain temperatures, certain amounts, mix them together, you get your end product um, but now I've learned a lot of the nuances that go into the the why of why those things work.
0: I mean, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that like baking and soap making are really similar. You know, there are a lot of people who are great cooks who can't bake. Mm-hmm. They can't get an angry chemistry or they don't want to follow a recipe. And I guess the same would be true for soap makers. Hence, whatever my epic soap failure was, I definitely was trying to wing it a little bit. <laughs> you can't it's science I mean you can once you learn the basics you can start to wing it a
2: little bit um and I've you know I'm definitely at the point where I I've made some changes that work better with what I want my end product to be um but I needed to learn the basics first so in that way it is like baking like you do need to adhere to sort of uh, certain standards and measurements. And then once you understand them, you know which things you can play with and how much you can play with them.
0: Right, right. That makes total sense. You know, but it's like people watch like uh, I don't know, what is that show? The Great uh, British Bake Off? And they think they can immediately just go make a, an epic cake. And right. like they've never baked anything even from a mix before. And so I think that was just me with soap. I was like, well, I've used soap. <laughs> like, I guess I can, guess make, I can it. make it, right? <laughs> so Another parallel to baking, well, food in general and soap is really like the kinds of ingredients you use. And I know that this is something that makes what you're doing really different because just like you were saying, like there's a difference between the big bag of Domino's sugar and the sugar you're finding on farms. I'm sure it's the same thing with the kinds of ingredients you use for soap. It absolutely is. Uh,
2: and it makes all the difference in the world. So all of our soap is tallow based and tallow is beef fat. Um, it is molecularly much closer to the oils in our, on our own skin, what the sebum that our body produces than any plant-based oils are. You're a mammal, you're not a plant, right? So mm-hmm. you don't have properties of your body that are plant-like. We're different, completely different organisms. Um, and all soap was made with animal fat initially. And then we started getting into plant oils for multiple different reasons. Um, one, they're cheap. They can be very cheap. Um, they can be easy to transport. And people, it's very easy to sell people what they think is a more cruelty-free product. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, so all of our beef fat comes from, we work with a local butcher who uses all grass fed beef uh, from pastured animals within hundred miles of where we are in Philadelphia. Um, they don't, there's no factory farming involved. These are all regenerative agriculture farms. All of these animals are well taken care of and all the farmers and the butchers, every step along the way, you have them trying to utilize every bit of this animal that they can. There's not really any waste. So for us to be able to buy this tallow from them, which there's not that much of a market for, it's helping us keep these prices down to make healthy and well-raised and environmentally sound food more accessible for people. Because it's expensive, right? But the more we can use all the parts of it, the less expensive it will get for everyone. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So, and I when I first started, we did get a lot of pushback because people were like, well, what about coconut oil? And, you know, that's just one example, coconut oil. But so coconut oil has a few bad points to it. Uh, one being that it's really drying for your skin. It's not good.
0: <laughs> that is so interesting because I feel like that is in so many skincare products now. Like there's that, there's a whole line. It's like, you know, that there's that brand like yes to carrots or something. We have a sub brand that's like yes to coconut, but that's just one example. I mean, I see it all over the place all the time and like beauty bloggers talking about, I mean, I would never just like rub coconut oil on my face, but people swear by it. And my experience is that it has been in soaps very drying for me.
2: Yes. And that's exactly what it is. So years ago, I was one of those, I was totally
0: one of those like, oh my God, coconut oil fixes everything, people. <laughs> <laughs> I have also had many years of my life where I've been that person. Like, did you try to put some coconut oil <laughs> on it? Just a little coconut oil. It'll fix it. Just a little bit. It'll fix it. <laughs> um,
2: when, but when I first had uh, eczema, I would put coconut oil on and it would help initially. Um what I came to learn later is that what happens with coconut oil is it oversaturates your skin. It has so many good fats in it. And I, I, I love coconut oil for certain reasons, but not for regular use on your skin or your hair. So it oversaturates your skin, which confuses your body. It confuses your brain and your brain goes, oh, God, we're so oily. This We need to slow down production. So then Mm -hmm. your brain pulls back on its own sebum production, which ends up drying out your skin more, which makes you need more and more coconut oil. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. If you do have really dry skin, I don't know, say you're at the beach or something and you have some coconut oil, it's not going to hurt you to put it on your skin. Um, But if you're using it every day, and every day your skin is getting oversaturated, Mm -hmm. your body is going to stop producing the oils that it needs. So that doesn't happen with tallow or with lard because it's so close to to our own molecular structure that it doesn't confuse your body your body sees it as something normal and what happens oftentimes not always but some people who have skin issues you know you have you have psoriasis or you have, um, I don't know, your lips are dry, your hands are cracked, it's wintertime. A lot of times you'll see more healing happen with tallow-based products than you will with plant-based products where after using it for a few weeks or a month, you don't need it anymore. Because mm-hmm. your body has, cut, you've given your body a little bit of a boost that it needs. Because we're not perfect, and you know, none of our diets are great, and we're all breathing in polluted air, and who knows what's in the water we're drinking. So sometimes we need some outside help. Um, yeah. So it it can help. Um, you know, olive oil is definitely a plant oil that is good for your skin. Uh, it's it's similar. It's not really it's not oversaturating you, so it's not confusing your body so much. Uh, and the other issue with coconut oil is it's cheap and what a lot of people don't realize is that it's just as bad if not worse than palm oil when it comes to deforestation and causing species to go extinct um it we don't talk about that a lot because palm oil is the one that gets all the bad rap right and it all comes down to marketing what marketing is going to win out and who has better PR and coconut oil has great PR. (laughs) It
0: really does. But both of them, I mean, you know, another important thing to call out about palm oil is that there is an incredible amount of forced labor involved in the production of palm oil. And I would assume it is the same for all for coconut oil because coconut oil has become incredibly cheap, very cheap, come down in price so much and incredibly plentiful. Like you could go to Walmart and get a jar of co- coconut oil for like four bucks. You can't tell me that's made under good conditions.
2: Oh, it's not. So about ninety nine percent of the coconut oil and uh, coconut products in general, not just coconut oil, but coconut products, whether that's coconut oil, milk, whatever, uh, in Thailand, which is one of the biggest exporters, um, they're they use monkeys, which most people <laughs> don't know. Uh, and it's
0: very- wait, help, tell me more.
2: So. Coconut trees are very, coconut palms are very high trees. It's very dangerous and difficult and time consuming for humans to climb coconut trees. So I found this out the first time I went to Thailand, uh, probably about four years ago. Um, I was driving down the highway with uh, a friend, two friends of mine, one who's American, but was living in Thailand and one who is Thai. And there was a big truck full of coconuts next to us. And there was monkeys on the truck. And I was losing my mind. And I was like, why are those monkeys on that track? Why are they climbing around? And my friend was like, oh, they work there. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean they work there? What?" And he was like, the, the monkeys, they pick the coconuts. And I was like, what are you talking about? So this led me into like a million questions, um, and then tons of like research and reading. But most people outside of the United States know that it's common practice for monkeys to pick coconuts. It's quick and easy for a monkey to climb up a tree and get a coconut. Now, just like with anything else, there are farms that take great care of the monkeys that work for them. They feed them. They're like part of the family. They're kind to them. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to use the word exploited because that depends on, on your viewpoint, maybe using animals at all you think is exploitation, but they're treated very well. And then there's farms where they pull their teeth out. They keep them chained. They don't treat them well at all. They keep them almost on the brink of starvation in order to keep working. Um, and this isn't just Thailand, by the way. This happens in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in all of the that whole area of Asia where most of the coconuts are grown. Um, so, yeah, monkeys are picking most. There's schools. There's literal monkey schools where they take these monkeys from the wild, they send them to these schools to learn how to pick the monkeys, and then they end up going to farms and working on these farms. and Picking the coconuts. <laughs> um, so that's like one of the really crazy things about coconut oil. Um, and then also, there's all the deforestation that goes along with it, just like with palm oil. And there is all of the forced labor and cheap labor of the humans that are working there as well. Because, you know, when a large company comes in and decides to start farming coconut. The people around there, they work there or they don't have a choice. So mm-hmm. there's a yeah. lo- you know there's whole bunch there that could be unpacked about that as well. So you, know, you know, anything that we're really getting in mass from too far outside of our immediate areas tends to have poor circumstances surrounding it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's beef or coconuts or clothing, um mm-hmm. any, absolutely. Like, absolutely. Anything we're mass producing, it, it it's not it's not cheap or easy to mass produce anything. So somebody has to suffer to make it cheap and accessible.
0: I mean, I think you just nailed it right there. Mass production is really what the problem is here. I mean, gosh, you can get canned tomatoes that were, you know, harvested using forced labor from China. Like visit Doing anything on an epic scale becomes really all about profitability and squeezing out every last cent, which means messed up shit like this happens. You've got enslaved monkeys, enslaved people, people living under such poor conditions that they're – I would question whether they're free in the first place anyway, Mm -hmm. you know. And, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that – It's unfortunate that we live in this time right now where it can become, like, paralyzing, overwhelming, excruciatingly painful to realize that so much of the stuff in our lives that we take for granted has these origins, you know? And I think sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to put on my blinders, I'm going to cover my ears, I'm just going to ignore this and, you know, continue on. But I don't think that, yes, it's horrible to hear this stuff, to know this stuff, but I think it's the... Knowing this is the beginning of making it better. So you hear that like maybe coconut oil is harvested under really sketchy, bad, exploitive circumstances. Maybe you start buying local soap. Exactly. You know what I mean? That is made with ingredients that were harvested locally. Like these steps all add up. I think that our desire for as much stuff as possible, as conveniently as possible, has only allowed companies to become even more exploitative I absolutely
2: agree um I am all about capitalism to a point but it needs to be conscious capitalism yeah, um, yeah. I, I like capitalism I like that I can go have my own business and I can decide how to run it and that there is a venue out there for me to do that like that's part of capitalism and I think that we need to stop making the word capitalism itself be so negative because it's not it's how we use it
0: Right. Right. It's been distorted. Exactly. Uh, um, much like a lot of like, much like coconut oil has been distorted. Yes, right. And, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think I, I like capitalism in theory makes really perfect sense because it gives people the ability to exchange their skills for money. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it theoretically makes people compete with one another to create the best product, create the best innovation. Right. To you know, serve the customers the best, but unfortunately, somewhere along the line, it just went off the rails, and now it's just like it's just garbage stuff right. everywhere. You know, because when <laughs> you
2: have when you have such varied parts of capitalism, right? You have like a small business like me who just literally started with you know nothing, and I was like, I'm just going to do this thing, and then you have giant corporations who start with billions of dollars, and they get to kind of set the rules. Mm-hmm. because they have money. It's the same thing with any any large organization, right? Whether it's politics or capitalism or democracy, the people at the bottom don't really get to make an impact. They have to all do something to make an impact, and that's hard, right? It's hard to have so many people even understand what the problem is on the same page to all make moves to impact the big players.
0: Oh, absolutely, because we're all so stuck just trying to survive that who has extra time right to go out there and fight right it's hard and what's important to one person isn't going to be important
2: to the other person and that doesn't mean that those things aren't both equally important but we're stretched really thin you know so when you're and unfortunately that's is what capitalism comes down to and you know it seems like just as a as a species, maybe we're not moral enough for capitalism.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, back when I had capitalism month, I think that was like February and was just like really doing all of this really heavy reading into it. That was what I ended with. I was like, in my mind, I was like, conclusion, humans not ethical enough to do capitalism right. And I think that like, Long term, if we want to make the world a better place and alleviate a lot of the exploitation and suffering and destruction and waste, I mean, there are a lot of changes that we have to make. But one of them that will have major systemic effects is elevating small businesses and pulling our spending away from big companies. Yes, like, if Walmart is selling you a $4 jar of coconut oil and you're out there buying it and buying it and buying it, mm-hmm. then they keep making it, keep making it, keep making it, and they know that their customer is more focused on what's cheap rather than what's better. Whereas if you bought coconut oil locally, I have no idea. This is a really bad metaphor. You're not yeah. you are buying local coconut oil. But you know, like if you started buying your coconut oil from someone who you knew who made it themselves, who made it locally, who... Was trying to build their own business and do things ethically and pay a living wage. That allows that company to grow, that business to grow and serve more people and offer better products and pay people living wages and have like an, a good impact on the world. Whereas if you just keep giving that $4 to Walmart, nothing changes. Exactly. Nothing gets better. They, Walmart just makes more stuff to stock that shelf. And I'm not picking on anyone who only has $4 to spend on coconut oil. Like, listen, I hear you. That is my life, okay? Right. But but, I think- but like these big companies didn't get big because poor people could only afford their stuff. That's the real talk, you know. It
2: is. For real. That's why I think it's really important for those of us who can afford to buy outside of those venues do. So sure, not everybody can go to you know the local organic supermarket that's near them and buy their meat directly from a butcher who those animals are raised locally or you know the tomatoes that come a few yards from there. Maybe you're getting the cheap tomatoes that are grown in South America because it's what you can afford. If it's only what you can afford, you keep doing that and you buy what you need to do and you do the best you can. But exactly. when we start to to hit different levels of income and you have a choice, I think it's really important to make that choice. And I think that that's where we, it is hard, right? When you're, when it's like all this fear porn and doomsday, and then people go, well, whatever, I can't make a difference. So I'll just, I'm not going to spend three times the amount. Like you actually can make a difference. And the people you're going to make the difference to are the people
0: below you. 100%. Like use that privilege, okay? Right. Because, Like, I say this all the time. I'll say it again. (laughs) Fast fashion, for example, did not become this many billions dollars industry because poor people could only afford to shop there. It was because middle and upper middle class people were also shopping there and buying a shit ton of stuff. They weren't going there to just buy the clothes they needed. They were buying new stuff for every occasion, Mm -hmm. a whole suitcase of clothing for every trip, something new for every party, stuff to wear to brunch, blah, blah, blah. That is how that industry spiraled out of control. Right. Because people want deals. People want deals and they want, most importantly, a
2: lot of stuff. Yes. Which is where we're not moral enough for capitalism, right? Yes. There
0: you go. Yeah. It's interesting, right? It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, what is the solution? And this is a different podcast for people who are like economists or something, not us, but like, <laughs> and I'm sure there are people who are discussing this right now all over the world how do we make how do we make capitalism work in an ethical equitable way when we know that humans aren't ethical <laughs> right and that's the
2: thing is we need to we need to make it not seem like an unachievable goal which is how you do it right yeah also it's the way you do it so i don't ever believe that shaming anyone is ever going to get them to do what it is you want them to do right so i try very no. carefully to like at, I just probably said the most bad things about coconut oil in this conversation with you than I ever say when it comes to like us promoting our business or talking about my business because I try to focus on the good that I do without focusing on the negative that other people do. So, and again, one of one of the things that makes my business a little differently, I think this is actually how we started this portion <laughs> before we went on our tangent. Uh, I try to use everything. Um, I try to use all of this food waste and food scraps that we normally just throw away because we live in such a throwaway culture, both with our food, with our clothing, Mm -hmm. with, you know, the way you look. So many things we just, they're one use. They're disposable. And, you know, even... Uh, thank God I'm old enough and I've, I've been with my boyfriend for long enough that I'm not a part of this culture, but even the dating culture now. Oh God,
0: don't get me started. It's a throwaway
2: <laughs> culture. Like there's there's no investment in your choices. So you don't care if they don't work out. So we take a lot of waste products. Like I take citrus peels and tallow and cherry seeds and stems and we infuse all of our oils with them. So these things started out as a, as a plant that was growing, that was contributing, living its life and contributing to the world and the soil health and adding oxygen to the planet. And then it got eaten by someone. And then we took those parts that can't get eaten. And then we used the properties that are in it to make a skincare product. And then maybe after that, depending on exactly what happens, it either stays in that bar of soap or if there's some things left over after that, then it's going into a compost pile, Right it makes that bar of soap, not mm-hmm. just something when somebody knows that it makes that bar of soap. That's not just something you don't think about. You get in your shower and you're like, oh wow, this was, this was made. I try to really show what we do. Um, we just got like one of not ever had anything go viral, but one of the closest things we had was a, a, a reel <laughs> I did recently. Um, we got a bunch of orange peels from a local water ice maker who they use all fresh fruit and all their water ice got a ton. They scoop out the inside. They have no use for the outside peel. Well, I use blood orange in one of our most popular scents. And what I do is I collect those peels. I dehydrate them and I chop them up and I run them through a food processor and they become a powder, which ends up going in to infuse the oils and as kind of like an exfoliating part of the puzzle in the bar of soap or, and it also adds color. Because all of our colors, I don't use any synthetic color or fragrances. But so people being able to see that, like, oh, I would normally, like, maybe I'm going to have somebody look at the orange that they eat a little differently and maybe be like, oh, you know what? Let me not just Mm -hmm. throw this peel away. Maybe I can do something with it. But they're at least going to have more of a connection. I think it gives a little bit more value to our own lives, like us as people and as individuals, when we have more value in the things around us that we use. Um, I feel like I hear more and more from people that they they just like, well, what's the meaning of life? And they feel like their existence is empty. And I think a lot of it is because of the throwaway culture we have.
0: Mm, I love that. I mean, yeah. I don't love the throwaway <laughs> culture, but I, I think that you are onto something there. I mean, this is a conversation. I have had with so many people, especially during the pandemic. Honestly, my birthday was yesterday and I have been like crying for 24 hours about like, what does my life mean? Oh my God, happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, it was a shitty birthday, but, uh, also just like, you know, what does it all mean? You know, like having like just a lot of crying episodes about like what what is my value to the world and what do I bring to it and what's the meaning of my life? And I'm, I mean, everybody is experiencing this, right? But it's interesting, like you even talked about dating, being a part of this throwaway culture. And it's like, yes, yes, because we're all shopping. I mean, not me, I'm married, but we're all, Mm -hmm. we're all shopping (laughs) for everything. And thanks to the internet. I mean, I have, don't get me wrong. There are about a million things I love about the internet, but there are also some that I see have changed our behavior. And one is that we have infinite access to infinite everything, right? Right on our phones, in our pocket. And so we're constantly shopping for what's next in terms of clothing and food and places to go and furniture in our houses and people we date. Right. Because we're hardwired for that, right? We're, we're.
2: An animal that needs to always look for where is my food coming from? Where is my mate coming from? Where is my shelter coming from? So that's hardwired biologically in our brain. We're always going to search those things out. And unfortunately, in the day and age we live in now, which isn't that long in in human history, our modern world where there's all of these, you know, shopping opportunities is very new. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's been exploited so much by marketing because we're susceptible to it. And I think that that's what we need to realize. We need to realize that we're susceptible to these things, and maybe you know, give ourselves some sort of way to protect ourselves a little bit about it. And I'm not saying that people should just like go back to you know, don't buy anything ever. Like, sure, buy things, but there's there's got to be a middle ground, right? There's got to be somewhere that. You can buy some things that make you feel good, but not buying so many things because you're trying to make yourself feel good. Totally,
0: totally. And I mean, this is a journey I've been on myself. If you want to talk about getting bombarded with marketing and things you should buy, try being a professional buyer because then you're getting bombarded with like 100 times that because I would be like, okay, I'm on social media and I'm seeing it there. And then like I'm getting emails from vendors of line sheets and other things they're trying to make and sell and they want me to buy for my job, but it makes me desire them as a person too and then I'm going to meetings where I'm looking at sketches and new product that's coming and I want all of that and like I'm seeing other stuff that people around me are wearing because works like a fucking fashion show and so now I want all of their stuff too and like it was like just bombarded with stuff all the time and then wait a minute oh yeah uh, I don't need all that stuff you know <laughs> right. Well, we're we're hardwired
2: to want it, right? It's because never, never in the history of humanity has there been the abundance that really. we have now. And I think that another thing that we need to realize about this is we do like so many people, right? You just see it everywhere. And I feel like no matter who you are, you have at least one friend, mo- probably more, but at least one friend who just they they don't they feel empty. They feel there's all this depression, and it's I think it's because we have too much. Because none of those things mean anything to us. So there's not value in those small little parts of our everyday lives. Even just 100 years ago, not even 100 years ago, when my grandmother was a child, they they made their own clothes. And it wasn't because it was cool. It was because you there wasn't a place. They were poor and lived in right, the hills of right. North Carolina. There wasn't somewhere to go buy them. Like You didn't have the option, even if you had the money. You, you had to make them. And you had maybe one or two outfits. So those things, you, they, you paid attention to them more, right? Because they are what you had and they meant mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. They protected you, right? Same thing with food. A lot of people grew their own food. And I think that you're seeing this a lot more through the pandemic. A lot of people started gardens and it's giving them a different relationship with food. And I think that it's important to have a relationship with the things we use in our lives. Um, And that's not even to say you can't buy things. You can, sure. But what's your relationship with that thing? Buying things just to buy them, I think, is bad. But buying them because, you know, I don't know, maybe you you met the seamstress who made that new dress and she had an impact on you and you think her work is beautiful. And now every time you wear that, you're going to think of that mm-hmm. person, right? So it gives you a tangible reality connection with the creation of this thing that you have. Um, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get over having things. I think we're, we're always going to want that.
0: I mean, yeah, we're hunter gatherers, right? right? That's, that's how we're wired. I was thinking- exactly. You were talking earlier, I was thinking about um, when I I first moved to L.A., I had a roommate who had two small children, and we actually were living quite a dream. We rented a house on the top of a hill in Highland Park, and we had chickens, and we had a garden, which is kind of like a wild life to have in L.A., and I remember one of the kids, he was five, asking his mom, like, why are the chickens always eating? Why are they always thinking about eating? And she's like, that's how most animals are, except for humans. They're always just thinking about eating because that's how they stay alive. That's their primary focus. And she didn't get into reproduction, obviously, a young audience here. And that has stuck with me (laughs) since then because I was like, you know, it's interesting. We no longer, for the most part, have to constantly search for food. But there was a time in our evolution when we did. And I feel like now that part of life isn't as hard all the time or we don't have the ability. Even if you can't afford groceries, it's really unlikely that you're going to be able to go out and like search for food in the park. Um, And so, you know, like we still, we don't get to hunt and gather in the way we used to. And I think that's why things are so important to us.
2: Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. I think it's important for our biology to hunt and gather But I think that a lot of us are overgathering. Overgathering,
0: yeah, yeah. We're
2: overgathering because there's abundance. You know, think about, you know, just think about what we eat, right? Think about sugar. You know, three hundred years ago, if you wanted some sugar, you got it when the fruit was growing, and it was a short season. You know, you didn't have access to. If you lived in this part of the world, you didn't have access to strawberries all, all year long. You had access to them for two weeks out of the year, and that was it. In one area. And you probably had to work to get to that area. And now I can just have all the sugar I want for pennies at yep. any time of the day. I think emotionally and mentally it's a lot harder now than it ever was in the past. Although it was a lot harder yes. physically. Yeah.
0: I would agree on that. I think that especially social media and before that television and magazines. Yes really opened us up to a world outside of where we live and made us suddenly feel like our lives might not be good enough. Um, I think social media exacerbated that an extreme amount where you're like, why am I not traveling all the time? Why don't I love my job? Why am I not engaged? Or, you know, all of these things that like it plants in your mind and it's, it's, it's a weird time to be alive. You know, I live out here surrounded by Amish people who have a very untechnological life. They don't have washing machines and stuff like that. And they right. don't have cars. And I see how physically hard things are for them, but sometimes I get a little envious. Not that that's a perfect culture either. It's very misogynist and there's a lot of sexual abuse and all kinds of other things. But I'm like, they're right. probably not sitting around wondering if they're a failure because they're not like a vice president. In their like job title, yeah, definitely exactly. not. And so, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> definitely it's definitely not. They both two different sets of struggles. Neither are great. Yes. Um, speaking of things that we overconsume, though, uh, I wanted to talk about like the packaging for soap and personal care products as as a whole because they're a major contributor to plastic waste. The industry itself creates about one hundred twenty billion units of packaging each year, which. 120 billion is a huge number, but I actually was like, oh, that feels smaller than mm-hmm. I thought because you want to talk about a way that people <laughs> hoard in 2021. It is skincare and makeup. And there is a massive industry ready to sell you new makeup every week and like do a shelf yes. and all all of this stuff. So mm-hmm. one thing that I noticed about your business that made me really excited is that you use reused packaging.
2: Yes. So I always from the beginning was no plastic. And that was mostly coming from the uh, health aspect of it, Um, even though a lot of plastic. So like everybody remembers like BPA Mm -hmm. it's bad for you, right? Like don't use BPA. It causes all of these birth defects and other issues. Well, the problem that never gets really talked about after is so we got rid of a lot of BPA and a lot of packaging will now say BPA free but it has been replaced with, and forgive me if I get the letters wrong, but I believe it's BPF and BPG, (laughs) but I might be wrong about those. So they're similar plastics that weren't tested at all, but were created to replace BPA. And it seems like they may actually Uh, be worse than the BPA. There's always a catch. There's always a catch. And, you know, we don't because that knowledge and information doesn't get readily out to people you have some scientists who are working on it but unless you're reading scientific papers about this specific issue you're not going to hear about it so i've tried to they even show that just just from like you know processing food the the chemicals from the plastics can leach into the food, not even being like if there's a tube saying that's like feeding, you know, I don't know, filling bottles of water, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, If it's a plastic tube, just the water running through that tube can end Uh. up leaching into that water and you're getting it. So even if you're getting a glass (laughs) bottle of water, if it's running through this plastic tube, there's a chance that that water has Mm -hmm. those chemicals in it. So Mm -hmm. I've always been very against using any plastic packaging and anything I do. Um, and then the environmental impact again is a huge one as well. What are we doing with all right. of this plastic? Because it's, it's nobody's holding on to like a plastic package and reusing it because it's made so specifically for that product that it's hard oftentimes to even reuse that. Um, and we also know that most cities are really, really terrible at actually recycling yes. anything <laughs> uh, if and it's you know- p- part of it is people throw the wrong things into their recycling right away. Um, part of it is that the cities just don't have the money. Part of it is that the cities, some of the cities, don't care. But even before we get to the recycling part of it, just the manufacturing. I know.
0: Uh, seriously, plastic. I think that's the thing. Is like I always talk about the delusion of recycling that we think like, mm-hmm. but like basically, yes. and I think we can all admit to have at least at least at some point in our lives thought subconsciously or otherwise that when you put that container into the recycling bin it cancels out the use of that container that like it never happened right like it's a net zero situation there but it's it's not because there was energy and materials used to make that container and in especially if it's plastic the odds of it being recycled are so low but if it is recycled there's more energy and more materials being used to make that back into something else. It's when you figure Correct. that out. It's, it, it's it, it's a bummer, right? It is because you can't like, win. Shit, yeah. Like, how does this? No.
2: You're like I thought I was doing good, and this was this already caused so much damage before <laughs> it even know, got to me. I know. Before it got into my house, it caused damage, and now I'm going to cause more damage by pushing yeah, it along yeah. into the world. Yeah,
0: it's uh, um, it's quite a. It's terrible. I mean, I think that when we talk about, like, overconsumption, we think a lot about, you know, the actual item that we bought. Like, and especially if we talk about, like, skincare or makeup, we think about the contents, but we don't think about the overconsumption right. of packaging. And, like, if you want to talk about an industry that goes super hard, that prioritizes packaging almost over anything else, that is, oh, like, yeah. personal care and beauty products. Like, I... Have done so much research into just like how, and if you talk to anybody who works in this industry, if you buy, for example, an eyeshadow palette, the most expensive thing about that eyeshadow palette is the palette, not the contents. And I think Mm -hmm. we don't think about the consumption of the packaging.
2: (laughs) Right. And so, so many cosmetics and soaps and other things in that vein are, you can, you can just decide like you want a cosmetic line. And there's giant companies who will, you just decide on the packaging. They all mm-hmm. make the same product. They just put it in different packaging. Yeah. Like it's, packaging is so much more what sells anything in the cosmetic industry than the actual product on the inside. It's packaging mm-hmm. and then marketing. But like if your package is sitting on a shelf and it's not eye-catching, nobody's going to pick it up for the first time. Now, if it's good, they may rebuy it. But that first purchase is almost every time
0: based on what it looks oh, like. Yeah, we do judge a book by its cover. <laughs> totally. Where do you get your packaging? Our soap itself just gets
2: wrapped in paper, um, so that's it's compostable, backyard compostable, um, recyclable if you want. I compostable is always better. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, throw it in your fire pit. doesn't need to go in your trash. Yeah, it doesn't um, need to go on a car ride, you know? right? <laughs> yeah, like just keep it. Do something with it. bury it in yeah. your backyard with paper. Um, <laughs> and if it were up to me, I honestly wouldn't even package it. But there are certain rules that mm-hmm. cover cosmetics. I need to have ingredients listed. I need to have certain things on there legally. So I need to have some sort of label on it.
0: Which um, I get, so, that makes sense. Like yes. nobody's nobody's mad about that. What right. about like I so, recently bought from you a candle, which is like my favorite mm-hmm. candle ever. Um, I don't Yay. usually go for food candles, but it's the coffee and donuts one. Oh nice. Uh it's got really it creates a really nice ambiance in my office. I um, love so it. <laughs> that came in a glass jar. Where do you get all yes. your glassware? So all of our glass is previously used glass
2: that was once headed for the trash. Uh, so we are really fortunate to have some friends at a company here in Philly um, called Remark Glass, uh, and they're a woman-owned company here. They take their glass blowers by trade, um, but they take waste glass and do all of their glass blowing with it. So they've always collected wine bottles, beer bottles, all sorts of different glass that was done being used. It served its purpose. They collect it. And they make beautiful mugs and glasses and light fixtures and murals and all sorts of amazing things out of it. Uh, When they and I met, we started talking about containers and they started making the first thing that we ever made were um, I make a solid lotion and they made my containers for that. So we basically took uh, beer bottles and they cut and polished them and I fill them with our solid lotion and put a cork on top and all of a sudden you have this piece of glass that was once headed for the trash or hopefully to be recycled um, that's now doesn't need any energy to live its next life other than the little bit of energy locally to cut and polish it.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: So that's what we started with. We've now, they have launched a nonprofit called bottle underground and they, which has ramped up their collections from the public of glass Um, So they have a lot more incoming glass before. So there's a lot more for me to choose from. So now what we try to do in order to limit the energy that gets put in, I try to find glass items that don't really need to be um, manipulated in any way for us to use them. So one of our most popular, did you get the small candle or the large candle? The small candle. So those jars are from uh, yogurt. There's a yogurt company that makes... I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really huge company that I won't say their name because I don't actually think of the most ethical company. Big Dairy, you know, I'm not the biggest fan. But... The glass jar is great, right? So, And it works great for candles. So tons of people eat them. So that is what our candles go in. And then our larger candles, we actually just switched over. We were using um, liquor bottles and wine bottles, but we're now actually switching over to salsa jars. Ah, because they so many good. salsa jars. So that is going forward what all of our, candle, our larger size candles will come in. Um, and nobody... Most people don't realize just looking at them that it's a salsa jar because it doesn't have a label on it, right? You don't know that that's a yogurt jar because the label's off of it.
0: No, um, I totally didn't know that at all until I i know the yogurt that it is. only, mm-hmm. And I don't buy – I'm a major hippie just so everyone knows. I actually make my own yogurt. Nice. Uh, so I don't buy prepackaged yogurt. But I was at the grocery store last week and I walked by a display of that yogurt and I was like – why? <laughs> I love it. And I will actually give credit
2: to them in that they, if you follow them on Instagram, they do like really push for the reuse of their jars and like part of that's marketing. Sure. But like, I don't care. I'll take it. Like they're putting that idea into people's heads. So I love it. Like they, they will like post pictures of like things that different people do with their jars. Like they made a little vase out of it or they put a candle in it or whatever.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. That actually, if you were like wanting to try to pour your own candles at home, this is like a great, it's yes. a great idea. Or, you know, like if you wanted to make your own yogurt and put it into little individual containers, that seems really extra. I ours is like in a big humongous mason jar in the refrigerator, but right, if, but. If you left the house ever, this is a good way to take it with you. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah,
2: so they're great jars. So that's now what we – all of our glass is um, 100% from – so the other thing with glass that a, a lot of people don't talk about is the carbon footprint of getting glass shipped. So there are not a lot of factories in the world that actually make and manufacture glass, and most of them are overseas, and many of them are in China. Uh, I don't know if you remember last year, if anybody remembers, that all of a sudden,
0: because everybody was canning, you couldn't get ball canning jars. Um, I know, because I got swindled on the internet. Over ball jars, okay. Uh, They were sold out everywhere, and (laughs) we we use a lot of jars in this house. You know, like because we, I make a lot of our own stuff. Like I make my my own pickles and pickled onions and yogurt, all these things, right? And uh, we needed some more because we'd lost a few. And I went online to order them. They were sold out everywhere. I find a website called. It was seriously called like. BallCanningJars.com that which should have sketched me out immediately, like, <laughs> but I was like, "This is on the up and up. It looks just like it." I ordered some. The next day, literally, literally the next day, listening to NPR, and they're talking about how people are scamming people on the (gasps) internet with ball jars. And I'm like, well, that would never happen to me. And then i was like, shit. And I went into my email and looked at the – I paid with PayPal for this transaction. And I looked at the pay to email address, and it was the classic scammy, just a series of different random consonants. Uh, Anyway, two months later – we get a package. I already like filed a ticket with PayPal. I was like, I want my money back. I got scammed. The package arrives. <laughs> I had ordered two cases of jars. I got two jars. Two jars <laughs> for 40 bucks, guys. Oh my god. Not 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 ball jars. <laughs> I'm right. So off brand. I, off brand. Um anyway, I will tell you out here in Amish country where everybody is canon like crazy. Uh there are other brands of jars. Yeah, that are pretty decent. But even out here at like the Amish department store, it's called Goods. Good place to get jars. uh, They limit the number of jars you can buy because they're (gasps) still they're still like in demand. So
2: so when I used to own my bakery, uh, we did our cupcakes in jars. We did cupcake jars and I did a four ounce jar like the little baby ones and then an eight ounce jar, which is like the regular size jelly jar. Um. So I found out a couple years in, I was having a really hard time getting the four ounce jars, like right before the holidays, which are were our busiest times. And uh, also out by you in Lancaster County is Fillmore Jar, who I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're like a warehouse wholesaler, and they're awesome. But you can like the public can order from them too. So if you're ever looking for jars, super oh, shout I'm out to Fillmore Jars. I'm bookmarking this. Great. I'm bookmarking it
0: right now because <laughs> this is awesome. When you need a jar. You need a jar. Yeah.
2: So (laughs) I found out from them that most of these jars are made at a couple of factories in China. And the way it works is, you know, don't quote me on the exact times here because this was a long time ago and I don't remember. But say for like, you know, January and February – that factory is producing four ounce jars and that is all they make. And they're not going to produce more of those jars until next January and February because March and April, they produce the eight ounce jars. And then the next two months they produce the 16 ounce jars. And then those jars all get shipped over to America on, you know, boats and shipping containers. And once they're here, that's it until the next year. So the more people start, a demand for this, a lot of times that demand can't be replenished until the following year because they're not, they're not
0: constantly being made.
2: Huh? So that was an interesting thing I learned about glass back then. That's Um, so
0: interesting. It makes sense though. You know, they must have the, the month they were supposed to make the big, like growler size bottles Mm -hmm. must've been a month during the pandemic because all of the Amish farms out here that sell root beer are out of bottles. (laughs) Well, and also
2: so many more people were starting small businesses using things like this. Yeah. So the demand went up too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other thing about glass that often gets overlooked because everybody wants to demonize plastic, which I do think plastic is bad, but it doesn't make glass the savior that a lot of people like to act that it is because we're shipping heavy-ass glass, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of miles, which has a carbon footprint of its own, and we can't neglect to look at that. Glass is not always the more eco-friendly option. So, and I I don't know that there's always, there's never one answer, right? So, and I think that it's a, really a disservice to the public in general when anybody pretends to have an answer that they say is the best most healthy answer. So now I'm really fortunate because all of my glass comes from less than five miles from where I am collected Mm -hmm. from the city that I'm in. But if I were buying all of the glass that I use and having it shipped here, that's a different story. That changes my entire carbon footprint. And that changes my contribution to buying you know new things even though they can be you know glass can be infinitely recycled even not in its its form but it can be melted down and used forever it it never loses Mm -hmm. like you know paper you can only recycle so many times glass is infinite um but so glass isn't always the best choice especially you know people who are not using recycled glass uh or you know are in a place where maybe it's harder to get that shipped to them um Sometimes sometimes it might be better for them to use something else. Uh, but anyway, for me, I'm super lucky and fortunate that I work with Remark and their nonprofit Bottle Underground, and I get we get things that were literally just being thrown away, and I get to give them a new life. And that was part of really what I wanted to do with Vellum Street was to have people look at their trash a little differently, um, mm-hmm. not like a lot of a lot of brands that use recycled and repurposed and are a little more organic and hippie, which is you know what I am they all not they're not all of them, but a lot of them have a very similar look right mm-hmm. they're they're craft paper and brown and white, and there's not a lot of color and I didn't want to that is great for a certain type of person, but some people want to go buy a pink candle. That's what they want and they're not looking for the eco-friendly option, right? So they're never going to buy the eco-friendly option if one doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. I wanted to create a product and create a company that if you're if you are interested in recycling or eco-friendly or ingredient quality, I'm the one for you. But also I want to kind of be like this gateway company for people who aren't interested in that, but then use my product and fall in love with it. And then maybe that will get them thinking on a path of being a little more conscious about their purchases.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I I belong to a bunch of Facebook groups. Some of them I'm like, I don't even know when I joined this Facebook group, <laughs> um, but I go on Facebook a lot to look at yard sales <laughs> I love yard sales. Which and so I'll, I'll see other stuff in my feed and someone was posting from some other group that was for like girl bosses or something terrible. It was like, <laughs> what do you think of when you hear the word sustainable fashion? And people were like, ugly, hemp, neutral colored <laughs> clothing that doesn't look good. And I was like, ah, oh, that is though, like yep. there is a certain font, that brown paper, yes a color scheme, a fragrance profile, all that stuff that we expect from more sustainable, more environmentally friendly products. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. No. For some reason, that's where everyone's gone. And I'm like excited when people break away from that.
2: Yes. And I think that that's what's important. And I think that that's one of those things, like getting back to like, how do we help people get out of this unethical capitalism? I feel like it's the people who are if you care about something, I kind of feel like it's your responsibility to help spread the message of what you're doing. And again, I don't feel like, shame it. You're never going to tell somebody like, oh, you're going to buy that, that soap, like that soap kills the dolphins. Well, you know what? They're not going to listen to you. Like now you just made them feel shitty and they feel like you're saying something bad to them. So why don't you give them an option of the thing they do want, but done in a better way. Mm-hmm. That's how you're going to get people to be more conscious and
0: accepting of these things because not everybody does. Some people just want a fun lip balm, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, that is a good transition into something that I know gets you really riled up. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about fragrances. Like, (laughs) you know, just to use an example, which based on a recent clotheshorse Horse Instagram survey, um, we talked about Everyone's all-time favorite Bath & Body Works fragrance. (laughs) I I mean, listen, we know, just in case you haven't heard this before, all the fragrances at Bath & Body Works are, like, highly artificial and made in a lab, right? Um, Yes just I actually I don't know if and if you had to do this in high school but in one of my chemistry classes we actually made esters which is what these are, oh. are and we made like rose ester and like I think a vanilla one and I can't remember the others but like I mean it's literally like it's chemistry you yes. know um it's not actual like rose oil or rose petals you know etc so that's how places like bath and body works can come up with things that just don't make sense if you know anything about fragrance like Cucumber melon, right? Right. By the way, number one fragrance in terms of Bath and Body Works among Clothes horse listeners. I'm listen. I'm not here to make judgments, okay? Um, and I'll judge you. That stuff doesn't smell good, guys. No <laughs> it's like I remember. I'm old enough to remember the early days of Bath and Body Works, uh, and and the Body Shop when things were for the most part more natural fragrances and I think naturally derived fragrances, but unfortunately that's really expensive. Uh, It's harder to mass produce it. Right. And so then we got cucumber melon and moonlight path and other things that don't make any sense to me. Um, But I remember the early days of like Bath and Body Works and Body Shop, there were only a couple fragrances and they were the ones that are kind of the easiest to do from a natural perspective, like lavender, you know, rosemary, Vanilla. And then it got weird. It got real weird. It got and real weird.
2: Fragrances are such a complicated aspect of what I do. Um, so, you have so one thing that I want to tell people when you're trying to shop for skincare or cosmetics or anything like that, that words to look out for that might tell you that somebody doesn't know what they're talking about or are trying to trick you cool. I can't wait. Every, Tell me. My first thing for anything, this goes for food too. If somebody says chemical free, it's wrong. Everything is a chemical, right? Ding, ding, ding. 100%. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> everything is a chemical. Your chemicals. Chemicals in and of themselves are not bad. There's a difference between synthetic and natural chemicals and not even all synthetic chemicals are bad.
0: You know, so this, this is interesting. So this is reminding me of. I mean, obviously, I know that everything is chemicals, right? Right. Um, I did a post a while back about rayon, mm-hmm. and a lot of like a lot of toxic chemicals are involved in making rayon. And some dude showed up. I don't know if he's like number one rayon fan or what. <laughs> But he's, like, not a part of our regular community. I cannot figure out where he came from. And he tried to mansplain to me on Instagram about (sighs) how I shouldn't fear monger about chemicals because even water is a chemical. He's like, yeah dihydrogen um, oxide, that got, that's that got you really frightened, right? That's water. And I was just like, oh my God, are you, I don't think you know who you're talking to right now. <laughs> yes.
2: There's a difference between toxic chemicals, which do come from much of textile production. Yes, And other chemicals. There's some benign chemicals, there's some good chemicals, there's some toxic ones, and there's different levels of toxicity in the toxic ones and even in the non-toxic ones, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. Too much of something good can be a bad thing. Uh, And not a lot of something that is considered toxic might not be toxic in lower levels. So there's, there's so much nuance in that world and it's so varied. And, you know, even scientists don't agree on a lot of these things. You look at, um, especially cosmetic so- scientists and formulators, and you have ones like, sunscreen a good example, where some are telling you regular sunscreens are, you know, toxic, and they're bad for your skin, and they're causing cancer. And then you should only use zinc. And then there's other cosmetic formulators and chemists who will show you all the science showing that that's not true. And it's hard. Science is a really, really tough place because the science is always right. Science is never wrong, but the way that humans interpret science is often wrong.
0: Right, right. And to be fair, a lot of the stuff that we take for granted in day-to-day life, whether it's a sunscreen or plastic packaging or artificial fragrance and soap, haven't been around long enough for science to really have fully investigated the impacts of them. I mean, exactly. that like plastic is a major example where they're like, we don't actually know how long it takes to break down plastic because plastic hasn't been around long enough. You know, it's only been right. around, like, what, 60, 70 years. So we know it doesn't break down in 70 years. We've seen that. Based on our tests, it's anywhere from a couple hundred years to a couple thousand years. And that's, That is a large span, you know what I mean? Yeah, it totally is.
2: And it's just still just a guess. It's still a guess. guess. It's
0: all a guess. And the same thing with sunscreen and whatever else. But you know, you can anecdotally use something that has a lot of artificial fragrance or coloring in it and see the impact on your body. Like that is one thing. Like, if you use something and it gives you a rash, you need to get that out of your life right Mm -hmm. away. Or it gives you a headache. I used to think that I hated candles and fragrances, and it's it's what I've
2: so I've never been somebody I've never been a girly girl at all. Um, I never really loved makeup. I went through a couple years in my early twenties where I definitely like wore makeup, and I, looking back at it, I realized it was the only time in my life that I actually ever felt subconscious about the way I looked um and it's because I feel like I look like a clown with makeup on I don't <laughs> like it. And, I, and I but you know I was like in my early 20s and you know I definitely was like going out to bars and like partying and that's what everybody yeah. did and I was yeah. like I thought I was just supposed to wear makeup and it took me a little while to like and I'm glad I, I realized it soon enough but I was like you know what, this just isn't me like I feel prettier without any of this stuff on um but I and like the smells would just, oh, I never wore perfume. I never liked Ugh, it. yeah And I came to realize later, it's not that I didn't like smells. It's that I didn't like many of these synthetic things because they would give me headaches. Um, and, you know, maybe it, I have a super sensitive sense of smell, uh, which I think is what led me being to be a good cook and mm-hmm. chef what I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sensitive to a lot of it. Not everybody is as sensitive. And I also do have an underlying autoimmune condition, which probably makes me more sensitive to it. Um, but once I started getting involved with more natural fragrances, natural is another one of those words that, surprise, doesn't mean anything. Means There's nothing. No We're regulation. all natural. Yeah, right. yeah. It literally doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, so that's that's another tough word. It's hard to not say it, but it really doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I try very hard to use synthetic or plant-derived. And even plant-derived could be, depending on what you do to that plant, it could have absolutely no relation to the origin of that plant once it gets through all the chemical processes of, you know steps to get it to where it needs to be to make that smell you want.
0: Oh, and total, um, and like also plant-derived can be bad. Like cyanide yes. is plant-derived, yes. <laughs> you know? So it, it's not always like a good thing to be plant-derived, but this is interesting because these are, when I think about greenwashing in the like the beauty cosmetic personal care industry, you're hitting on all the ones, natural, chemical-free, Mm-hmm. Um, plant derived
2: plant derived soy is a huge one because soy so the thing with soy in candles uh, especially so you see it a lot in candles and people talk like to talk about how eco-friendly that soy in candles is or skincare and the problem with soy is that the plant soy in order to get to a wax form uh-huh. it's not easy it's not like you take beeswax from a beehive and it's beeswax and you use it or tallow where you literally just heat it up and melt it and can use it soy needs to be treated and most of the time that's with hexane which is a chemical and it doesn't need to be included because it's not an ingredient it's a processing step ah. well, a lot of times with things that are plant like sure the plant itself isn't bad and because the general public doesn't understand the processing steps to get these things from the field into your product there that's lost on them and people don't know and i'm all about part of me is like, almost like, I don't care. Everybody can do what you want, but nothing should be hidden. Like, I don't like let people decide for themselves. And so when companies don't put that out there, like treated with hexane, so that someone buying that product can decide I'm okay with this, or I'm not okay with that. That's what bothers me. Um, Like, you know, there's a big argument with GMO food, right? Like, should we have it? Should we not have it? I don't
0: know have it but let it be labeled so people can make that choice totally. for themselves. Totally. That's exactly. you no. Know. Yeah. Yeah, and so if you love a cucumber melon, that's fine. Right. But I think you- it is important to realize that cucumber melon contains neither cucumber nor melon.
2: Yes, that's the. You should know what it is. Look, I love Skittles. I try and eat really well. I love Skittles and like sour candy like that. Mm -hmm. But I know it's not real food, and And I'm never in it. (laughs) No, I'm never (laughs) going to pretend it's real food, and I'm never going to try and convince somebody else it's real food, and I'm never going to think it's healthy. So when it's a a choice that I make, I'm making it knowing I'm like doing something terrible to my body, and I acknowledge that. Like this is awful for me, and I'm making the choice that I want to enjoy it anyway. Yeah, that's fine. That's Right. That's the nice part about living in the world we live in. We're allowed to make those terrible choices for ourselves. Um, But yeah, so cucumber, melon and a lot of those things are chemically created. And there's a lot of negative toxic chemicals that it seems like can lead to cancer. You have a lot of phthalates and things like that that seem to be endocrine disruptors. Um, again, there's a lot of science on this topic and even the scientists can't agree on it. So I'm not going to pretend that I definitively know, Mm -hmm. but what I do know is that that's just not a risk. I don't, I don't need that in my life and it doesn't do anything for me in a positive way. So I'm going to choose to exclude it. Um, I would rather eat my bag of Skittles that maybe are terrible for me than put something that smells like cucumber melon on me. But you you might be different, right? You might be like, I only eat organic lettuce, but I like to smell like cucumber, you know, melon. Totally, totally. We often make our own choices.
0: But I'm Um, sure people ask you, when is the cucumber melon soap coming out?
2: All the time. We get so – so I actually was doing – I was talking to a a gin manufacturer years ago, one of the biggest gin manufacturers out there, and cucumber is their big thing. And they wanted to do, they wanted to do like a giveaway to all of their bar partners, like for a holiday, for like Christmas season one year where they gave all of them either like a mini soap or a hand balm. And they wanted it to smell like cucumber because that is their, that's their shtick. That's what they pair their gin with. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very hard, but they wanted it to be all natural. And it was very difficult for me to explain the distillers themselves got it. But when it came time to talk to the more corporate portion of the group, they didn't understand why if they wanted it to be one way, I couldn't use certain ingredients. And they... Many people were bringing me like, well, just make it smell like this. Well, what about this? What do they use? And I was like, well, that's not natural. That's a synthetic chemical. <laughs> so it's not falling in line with what you want. You can't call it an organic product and we use that. Like it's not how that works. Um and it's just a lot of people don't understand that. And I, I don't blame people for doing it. And that's, again, why I try to explain to people that what we use is all food-grade ingredients. Because I want people to start the conversation with me. I don't I don't want to tell them why other things are bad. But I'm happy to tell them that they are if they're interested. Uh, and I, I think that that is... A responsibility that falls on a lot of us small business people, whether no matter what industry you're in, is to help educate people. Like, that's part of our job. That's how people are going to know. We know it because we're involved in it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it's common for a lot of people to like think other people are uneducated or, you know, dumb or they don't care because they don't know. But how else are they going to know? Their whole life isn't, you know, like most of the people I meet, they don't spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day thinking about soap and skincare products. <laughs> well, oh, exactly.
0: Wow. And this stuff, it's like, it's not widely known for a reason. Do you imagine right. if Bath and Body Works did a rebranding where they were like, made with phthalates. <laughs> now, right. with phthalates. You oh, know, phthalates. know what I mean? It's great. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's hidden for a reason.
2: It is, and but the other the other side of that coin is that some synthetic fragrances. Now, I don't use any synthetic fragrances at all because I've realized that my customer base does not want that in any way, shape, or form. So I don't use, and I don't like them. So I don't use them at all. The other side of that is that essential oils, which you know we think are we think from what we know are more physically safe for you, um, and they. Aren't endocrine disruptors and they're a little more healthy for you to use and breathe in. The amount of land it takes to grow the plant matter for essential oils is astounding. Um, so, when we're worried about mass production and monocropping, essential oils fall under that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really the one part of my business that I'm not happy with ethically, but I'm stuck at a point where. I'm not sure what my next step is to do because what sells my product off the bat to people is how it smells. And if it doesn't have a smell that draws them in, I'm probably not going to get them as a customer, Mm -hmm. which means that all of the other good I'm trying to do with using food waste and using glass waste and trying to support local farms, that goes out the window, right? And this is yet another reason why I'm like, I don't think there's many companies, big or small, that are the absolute devil, right? Everybody has to make choices. And, you know, I make the choice to use essential oils because I think it's, on a one-on-one basis, I think it's the healthier choice to make. But as an ecological choice, I don't know that it's the healthiest choice to make for the environment. Whereas creating something in a lab that takes less plant matter possibly has way less of an impact on the environment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know but what is that doing to us on a personal level so it's hard right I don't think we've reached a place yet where we can create synthetic th- scents that we know are safe for skin use now that would be like the ultimate goal right that would be great if we could mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. just don't know that we're there right now um, so that's that's the the fragrance conundrum in a nutshell is I don't really think any of them are the best choice.
0: <laughs> well, right. And like nothing is, I mean, nothing is good to overconsume, consume, right? right? It would be okay to only use and buy natural, naturally derived fragrances, you know, like essential oils. If we weren't like shilling them nonstop on Amazon right. and like, what's that one sort of like MLM, that does uh, essential oh, oils like
2: Young Living, doterra. And doTERra. yeah. And mm-hmm.
0: that's the thing—they're being consumed to such an extreme degree that, like, I mean, I see them like at the grocery store at the checkout, you know. Yeah. And that is scary to me, actually, because like the amount of plants—like, I'm so glad you brought that up—the amount of plant matter required to make a tiny little bottle of essential oils. It's, it's, extreme. I forget what it is and I, I wish that I would have looked it up, but it's
2: like multiple thousands of roses to make one ounce of rose essential oil. Thousands of roses, like Jeez. to make one ounce. Now, how gross is that? What, that is gross. Right. And we don't, because people don't know this, they can't make those decisions. Like, I look at, while I try and have my products at like a, like a, a, kind of median price. I want people to look at them as a luxury product. I don't want they're consumables and sure they're going to wear out, but I don't want them to be something that people are just using as a consumable. I want them to think about what goes into that product when it's made and not just my product. I want them to think that in I'm I'm hoping that by using my product, that translates into other things they buy so that we can become more aware of how much weight you just think, oh, it's a bar of soap, right? What whatever, I need it. Like it's soap, I'll just buy this nice soap. But like there was a lot that's environmentally impactful that went into that bar of soap. Mm-hmm, so, and mm-hmm. I just I just think that those are it's a way we have to start training ourselves to think if we want to have any impact on what goes on in the future of, you know, our ecological impact on the land we live in.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Just so much more thoughtful consumption. Like make a bar of soap last, get a soap dish. Oh. You know what I mean? Like just all of these things, like honoring the work and the resources that went into everything you use.
2: Right. And it's, there's a, um, there's another Philly soap maker who I love and her, um, golden water she's great and like her whole brand is and we're very different in what we make like we're very different companies but like her tagline is like the luxury is you and i'm like i want people like i love that that she is like you know get this for yourself, do something good for yourself, but like pay attention to it. Like know what it is that you're doing. It's not just a yeah. thing. like, think about yourself for five minutes while you're washing your hands, like take care of yourself. Like that's what it's there for. And I think the better we can take care of ourselves, the better we're going to take care of the things around us. Um, you know, I think a lot of it love really, that. you know, I think a lot of it does really start with ourselves. so you're not going to like save the world when you're eating, you know, Pizza fries and like swiping left on Tinder all night. You're
0: not. <laughs> Although, now that you said pizza fries, <laughs> no, I, my stomach did growl a little no, bit.
2: They're <laughs> delicious because they are. Food is my weakness and like junk. Like, I love all food. I love junk food. I like really good food. <laughs> so, <laughs> I understand eating garbage. Like, it is like crappy candy is like a complete, complete I mean, weakness for it, me.
0: It's popular for a reason. Right. You know, like, I, this is a conversation we have a lot in our house because, you know, like, my husband and I, we're hipsters and, you know, aging hipsters or whatever. And he definitely is that kind of hipster who's, like, kids these days, you know, <laughs> they don't, that they don't, music sucks or whatever. But uh, I'm, like, well, the thing is, like, everything that's popular is popular for a reason. Right. you got to take a step back and it can be pretty enjoyable. And when you're, like, a grouchy hipster, that's a really tough concession. But, yeah. <laughs> You know? <laughs> um, it's true. So it's it's true. Um, well, you know, one last thing I just wanted to ask you uh, before we wrap things up here. Um, what's the soap fragrance that people ask you for the most often?
2: Oh, the most. So we get weird. Oh, we get weird ones. Like I get people who ask me for – I do get like a melon or a cucumber. We get that a lot. Um, I do get um, – Oh, this is such a tough one. Uh, I have a lot of people that ask for amber scent, which is weird because I don't understand what a stone would smell
0: like. Um, Okay. That's interesting because I have a lot of friends who love an amber note in a (laughs) fragrance. Um, And I, too, have always been confused by that. But it is like a fragrance that people know. Yes. Which it's obviously synthetic, right? Because, like, yeah, you can soak... Amber, a piece of amber, the rock in like water or oil, as long as you want, and nothing's yeah, nothing's coming out of it. Um,
2: and yeah, it's and such, such a weird one. It is. And so, I feel like somebody, you know, some one of these large companies made it up at some point. And like now, if you look it up and you read it, like people will be like, "Oh, amber is a blend of these oils," but th- that's a very new thing. Like before, mm-hmm. it was a synthetic created thing. Um, we also get asked for linen. Like, do you have anything that's like linen or cotton? What, do you, what, do you think I'm, what essential oil do you think I'm squeezing out of that piece of cotton?
0: Oh my gosh, that is so funny. But that's another one that's really mass produced. And my mind immediately you went to like, oh, you want like BO or something? And let <laughs> me think of how like my cat Brenda, if I ever leave any laundry on the ground and it's like a, a shirt or a dress, mm-hmm. she will rub her face <laughs> in the armpits of that garment for like hours ah. just ecstatically um Ooh. so she would like a soap that smells like my armpits apparently which might be linen i don't well, know. <laughs> you know
2: there's like there's a reason that animals like to smell like we've gotten so and again i'm a soap maker this is what i do is how i make my money it's how i eat and live and keep a roof over my head but we have sterilized so much of our world that people are afraid of what natural smells are and like their own natural smells like there's a reason that animals like your cat brenda loves to rub on your clothes because it smells like you she knows you and there's nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with that smell like there's there and there could be something wrong with it if there's something wrong with you internally right so it's we cover up Mm -hmm. a lot of these smells With all of these synthetic chemicals, and then we can't even tell that there's something, there's a reason we can smell things. And part of that is to know what to eat and where to go, but also it can tell us things about our own body. So when we don't have access to how we smell ourselves or how our partner smells or the people around us, we're setting our, we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage because we're covering it up. So we can't, we're not getting those cues, those biological cues that we're built to understand and know, um, that maybe we can get an early warning sign that something's not right. Maybe you're getting sick. Maybe you need to change your diet. Maybe you need to rest a little bit. Like you Mm -hmm. do notice, like I don't use deodorant and I don't shower every day. Um, one, I think it's huge waste of water and I think it's really unhealthy for your skin. Um, to hot water is bad for your skin too so <laughs> it's showering daily and like killing all of the good bacteria on you is just it's it ta- where it takes it's, it takes a toll on your skin um so i try not to every day um but yeah our our sense and our natural sense and our senses uh, according to those scents, are very important. And I think that, you know, luckily animals, I used to have a dog that loved to stick his face when I got home from work in my sneakers. He would go crazy rubbing <laughs> it all over them. And it's because that's a smell that smells good to them. Like they, they're either marking it with their scent or they're getting your scent on them so they feel protected. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's good. I don't think being too too clean and too removed from the natural world is in our best interest.
0: (laughs) I mean, I agreed. I think we've all learned a lot during the pandemic about, I mean, at least I hope (laughs) about how much over the top washing and grooming we were doing. Yes. Um, And I think I hopefully like we'll stick with that. Like I, I like to think that, you know, I mean, this sounds like really like, I don't want to be toxically positive here or (laughs) anything, but like, I do think that everything, no matter how bad it is, can have positive a positive impact on us, and I'm choosing to believe that everything we've been going through and are still going through is helping us make some better decisions for the future. I agree,
2: and I don't even think that's toxic positivity at all. I think it, I think it would be toxic positivity if you were like, "We are just going to learn all these lessons, and we're going to be better. Sure, it's going to be great." And that's not <laughs> the case. Like, I do think that, like. It, I don't even like using the words like good times and bad times, right? Because they're just times and they're things that are happening. It's true. It's, be it's this true. roller coaster. And from bad things, we do learn things. Now, they can stay bad if we don't take those lessons and try to utilize them and better ourselves. Now, that's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And I think that when you try to make it seem like it's like anybody can do it that's kind of toxic but when you're just like no mm-hmm. it's a thing and it's going to be hard work but you can get there I don't think I think that's taking the good out of the bad
0: yeah totally well, I'm glad we could agree on yes. that <laughs> <laughs> well, th- well thank you so much Melissa this was so fun it was
2: super fun I'm super glad we got to do this
0: Thank you again to Melissa for stopping by to share her expertise with us today. I learned so much from her. It set set me off on a reading frenzy. We talked about a ton of things in this episode from palm oil to monkeys and so much in between. Don't worry, I've gone out. I've read even more about this and I'm going to include a ton of links in this week's show notes so that you can read more if you're interested. By the way, you can find these show notes wherever you listen to Close Horse. But I did learn this week that Google Play doesn't transfer the links over from my podcast hosting service because here's some how podcasting works uh, insider info for you. I don't actually go and upload the episode and the show notes to all the different streaming services, you know, like Apple and Spotify and Google Play and Stitcher. Instead, I actually have to pay a hosting service every month that – hosts an RSS feed of my podcast and the notes. And it just pushes into those different service providers. So I don't have any control over how they present it on their end. And apparently Google Play is not transferring over those links, which is super annoying. So if you run into that issue or you're having trouble getting to all the notes on y- the streaming platform that you use, I recommend going to closehorsepodcast.com slash episodes, click into this episode. Um, once again, this is episode 96. And there you'll find the full show notes with links to all of this additional reading. I Every time I release an episode, I go right to Squarespace and put all of that stuff, including an embedded player. So you can also listen to the podcast episode there if you prefer. You can find Melissa on Instagram at Vellum Street Soap Company, and that's street abbreviated as S-T, you know, like if you were addressing an envelope, although I, for some reason, write it all out. I don't think you're supposed to do that. I think the post office prefers the abbreviations, by the way. You can also find her full product line and shop from her, figure out, find out where else she sells at VellumStreetSoapCompany.com. Once again, street is abbreviated. If you need some soap or a candle or anything else like that, please support her. I am obsessed with her products, her obsession with saving packaging and eliminating food waste and all of these things. It's such a great business to support. So please go check out Melissa at Vellum Street Soap Company. All right, I do want to take a few minutes here to talk about essential oils. As Melissa mentioned, making even a small amount of essential oils requires a ton of resources. For example, in order to produce a single pound of essential oil, just enormous being an understatement, amounts of plants are required. Like 10,000 pounds of rose petals, 250 pounds of lavender, 6,000 pounds of Melissa plant, 1,500 pounds of lemon peels the amount of plant material required varies from oil type to oil type, and some of these plants make more oils than others. Also, environmental factors like weather can decrease or increase a plant's oil production. Many of these plants are grown on large corporate farms that specifically grow these items for making essential oils, which when you think about it, That uses a lot of resources like water and land and fertilizer and who knows what else. When real talk, they could be growing food. Wild harvesting is another option. People literally going out and harvesting these these plants in the wild. The target there is that no more than 10% of a plant's population should be harvested in one year. And that maintains the population of these plants. But unfortunately, it's hard to track and enforce that. And as a result, a lot of the plants required to make some of the most sought-after oils, they're threatened. Some plants used for essential oils are listed on the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List of Threatened Species, including sandalwood, which is listed as vulnerable, and then multiple species of rosewood and atlas cedarwood, which are listed as endangered. Furthermore, these oils require a lot of energy to create. Many, like lavender and patchouli, are turned into oil using a process called steam distillation. The raw plant material consisting of, you know, flowers, leaves, wood, bark, roots, seeds, or peel, whatever part of this plant contains any of this oil it's put into a distillation apparatus over water. As the water is heated, which uses a lot of energy, the steam passes through the plant material, vaporizing the volatile compounds. The vapors, they flow through a coil where they condense back to liquid. That's the essential oil. Now, citrus oils are created via cold pressing. Lemon or sweet orange oils are obtained as a byproduct of the citrus industry. So as a result, citrus oils are less expensive and more plentiful. And I would say ultimately a decent thing because making oils out of those peels, it minimizes food waste. More delicate plant materials, specifically flowers like jasmine, hyacinth, and tuberose, are extracted using solvents like petroleum ether, methanol, ethanol, or hexane. And yes, these are all solvents that can have a negative impact on both the planet and the workers making the products. A lot of them are petroleum derived. You know, ethanol is a carcinogen, methanol affects neurological development, hexane can and has led to poisoning of workers. I'm not telling you this to make you afraid of essential oils. I'm not trying to make you fearful of chemicals or fearmonger here. I only want to make you aware of the hard work and all of the materials and risk involved in creating essential oils. Why? Because I don't want you to think of them as disposable. I don't want you to waste them. And it gets it gets easy to do that. You know, I am a major fan of Aldi. That's where I do my grocery shopping. And they've been selling essential oils for like five bucks, which I don't like. Those essential oils should not be five dollars. You know what I mean? Something doesn't add up there when you think about all of the materials and work involved in creating them. We also have to think about all of the packaging involved in these oils, from cardboard outer boxes to glass bottles, plastic lids, labels, etc. We don't want to overconsume that stuff either. And did you know, I just learned this today, that in many cities, you aren't supposed to just dump essential oils into the trash because they are extremely flammable and furthermore, oils should never come in contact with a water supply or groundwater, meaning that they should never be dumped down the drain or the toilet. I, I learned this today too. So in summary, we want to curb our impulse shopping when it comes to essential oils and so many other things. We wanna use these oils sparingly, we wanna respect all of the hard work all of the hard work and resources that go into making them, they are super valuable and they deserve to be treasured and conserved. It goes back to what I talked about earlier. It feels like hundreds of hours ago. These things like essential oils, like soap, like face lotion and eyeshadow and hair mousse, they seem disposable like temporary items in our lives, but they have a major impact on the planet and workers and us. And so we can't overconsume. We can't hoard and waste and undervalue these things. We can't buy these things just to take that perfect shelfie. These items are not temporary. They're not valueless. They do not lack impact. Nothing is disposable. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clothes Horse. Researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You know I have to tell you that. And please, tell a friend about Clothes Horse. Let's spread the word. Let's, let's tell everyone around us to respect essential oils. <laughs> Don't forget, episode 100 is coming up soon, and I want to hear from you. What is a segment that really sticks with you? How has listening to Close Horse changed your perspective? Who is a guest that you would like to hear from again? Send me an email, call the Close Horse hotline, or record a voice memo on your phone or computer and send it to me. You can find all of that contact info in the show notes. Lastly, never leastly, thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.